and welcome to the Scottish Song Guide with the Sorries. I am Douglas. And I'm Marty. It's nice to be back with you. It's a fair while since we've done a podcast. Um, the last one we did was about the Four Marys, I think. Um, but it was that a good was, while back. Uh, yeah, it was probably about three years ago, I think, wasn't Something it? like that. Um, but we have actually, in the, in the interim, we have done a, a couple of um, talks, so we haven't been neglecting our dives into the background of the the songs but plus uh, we had to spend the last six months worrying about not doing any gigs so that took up a lot of time always very productive obviously yeah in the in the absence of uh, any live concerts at the moment um we wanted to take the chance to do a, another podcast so um what we do in these podcasts if you haven't listened to them before is we basically take a song a Scottish song, one that's in our, our repertoire, and we dig a bit more deeply into the um, background of of it, how it was written, um, the lyrics and the melodies. So this episode, we are going to be looking at the song, which is called Land of the Leal. Are we upgrading these podcasts to episodes? That makes it sound a bit more grand. That's good. Well, it just shows, Marty, how often you're on the Scottish Song Guide website, scottishsongguide.com um, because you'll see that all of our uh, podcasts are <laughs> are marked up as episodes on that but uh, yeah well that's, uh, that was nice of you <laughs> <laughs> I should also say because in these um, times we're recording this uh, late November uh, 2020 and in these times everybody who's filming or recording anything has to establish that they are not breaking any rules so I should say that Marty and I are about 50 miles apart at the moment. Yeah, and we're basically doing this by a video call and then recording everything, which is fantastic because it means that I can flick him the Vs and uh, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, this episode we're going to look at uh, Land of the Leal and it, it's a bit of a funny one, isn't it, Marty? Um, it, it's a song which... I mean, f- from my point of view, I only heard about 10 or 15... Well, it must have been about 15 years ago, actually. Um, and I hadn't heard heard it before then, but I loved it when I heard it. And actually, we recorded it pretty early on. It was on our second album. Yeah, it was the title of our second album. But I don't, I don't think I'd actually heard it before you suggested we record it. I think it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And I, actually, listening back to it, it's got quite an... It's, quite a, it's a really simple arrangement. When, when we started... And we had so many songs um, that we got into the sort of live set quite quickly that we recorded our first two albums um, in fairly quick succession. And some of the arrangements were quite uh, straightforward. And Land the Leal, the arrangement we did of it was really simple. One voice, two guitars, basically. Yeah, that's right. Um, But we've decided to do this one partly because it's written by a woman who's often overlooked as one of the great Scottish songwriters, uh, Carolina Oliphant, or Lady Nairn. Um, but also because, bizarrely, it's not a song we've ever played live. I mean, we, we played through it a few times when we were recording it, obviously, and uh, we'd actually planned to reintroduce it, to the, or, or rather to introduce it to the live set this year. That's but right. um, it's not one we've ever played live, and yet it's by far our most streamed song on Apple Music, Spotify, all those things. There could, um, of course, be a correlation between the fact that no one's heard us butcher it and they want to hear what it sounds like. <laughs> well, possibly, yeah. 
Um, I think, though, perhaps it could be to do with the fact, be, because this has happened over the past couple of years, that it's really um, sort of gone up the the rankings, as it were, in our, our um, sort of listened to songs. But a version of it was included as the, the sort of outro theme for um, Outlaw King, which was the net, Netflix film about Robert the Bruce, which was out a couple of years ago. And I think, did you say, Marty, it was in a... The yeah, it was, in, it was in the year before that. It was on a, a version of it was on Little Women, the BBC production of Little Women. Ah, right, right. Which had a reasonably heavyweight cast, so I think it was kind of reasonably well known. Um, so I think... But I, I think so I, it, of recent times, obviously, it's suddenly become kind of popular because of those two fairly big platforms, if you like. Uh, but I think it's been... I, I was looking back at some of the old quotes about this and, you know, this is, it was thought of as being this incredible um, lyric poem or this great song all throughout the 19th century. And it was really quite famous. There's a quote from a, a guy who was a newspaper editor in Providence who wrote on, on folk songs and collected a lot of Irish and Scottish folk songs. Um, and in 1895, he published, this guy called Alfred Williams published studies on folk song and popular poetry. And he described Land of the Leal as perhaps the most perfect example of the lyric song in which the melody is mingled with and sustains and elevates the feeling and both are conjoined in an effect which melts the heart and possesses the ear. But just as you were talking about kind of reservations about saying, well, you know, it's maybe not the best known of all of our songs or anything like that. He goes on to state, um, it's kind of like, he's kind of qualifying his praise. He says, although the strain is not so high a rapture of love or sorrow as parts of Burns' A Fond Kiss or Lady Anne Bothwell's Ballow, which is a 17th century work, and is of a peaceful sweetness and resignation rather than passion, he says, in its original simplest form, before she had interpolated a verse to express some of her theological ideas, it is the perfect interpretation of a sweet, solemn and simple thought, the tenderest and purest emotion breathed in an equally simple but absolutely perfect melody that is like the flowing of limpid water, crystal clear and unbroken to the end. The heart of the world has responded and it has a place like none other in the tongue of song. So presumably he said that before hearing your version of it. But um, <laughs> I was actually just thinking, God, that guy goes on almost as much as you do. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Effectively, I reckon he's basically saying... This is the greatest song of all time, even though it's not as good as some others, and despite the fact that later on she ruined it when she tinkered with it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I, it, the, I, th I guess the point is that it's an it's this is an American. This is so it's an international, an internationally renowned song, to the point where you know something set in America and something set you know in old Scotland can in the modern period kind of use it as a this kind of big, um, elegiac mournful song it's it's still powerful clearly and, and we'll get into a little bit of um the the tune later which again will perhaps account for its kind of popularity but i think probably just now would be a good time to listen to a little bit of our version There's no 
was born in 1766 and as um, one of the most important writers of Jacobite songs it's probably before we look exactly at her life it's probably worth delving a little bit into into her background and her family which because she came from a really staunch Jacobite yeah, the, Jac- the Jacobitism came from both sides of the family actually um, well I mean and, and the third if you take her husband she became Lady Nairn but this is this is by the way not Nairn in the northeast coast of Scotland this is Nairn House, north of Perth. That the the e at the end is crucial. Um, yeah, because she she was from Gask in Perthshire, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, that's right. Which is kind of Ochterarder way. Um, but her, but as we we're saying, both sides of the family were staunch Jacobites. Uh, so her her maternal grandfather was Robertson of Strone, um, and he was the model for the Jacobite Laird Baron Bradwardine in Scott's first novel Waverley, uh, and. Then there's her her uh, her father's father, was out was the old Laird of Gask, and he was out in both the fifteen and the forty five, and he ended up as as governor of Perth during the forty five actually, uh, which is the seventeen forty five Jacobite rebellion. In case anyone doesn't know, so her grandfather was was out in both, but her father was out in the forty five as well, and actually as a twenty year old and ended up aide de camp to the prince, and he was. Uh, in Gask archives, in the Gask family archives, actually, there's a, a scrap of paper with the prince's words to her father on leaving the battlefield of Culloden. Uh, and he said, no help for it. God is all powerful who can give us the victory another day. But prior to that, in happier times, Charlie had visited Gask on his way south. Um, and actually, the it, it's an interesting an interesting visit in some ways because... We all sort of think about the clans being raised by the clan chief and everyone flocked to the standard and whatever else. But when the when her, her grandfather, the, the old laird of Gask, actually tried to raise his, his tenants effectively to come out for the, the prince, quite a few of them said no. So he went absolutely nuts and got really, really angry with them. And this is in August, so their crops are in the fields and he banned them from working their fields um, mm. until Charlie was riding past with him and said, you know, why are all these fields not being worked? There's crops here that should be being taken in. And he, it was explained that this was revenge, basically. Uh, and, and Charlie said, oh, I'm not having that. You know, and, and got off the horse, fed his horse a piece of, uh, a bit of grain from the field. And, uh, and then insisted on, on uh, that the ban was lifted by his decree hereafter. And of course, then uh, all the, all the, all of his his men are then going. Oh, actually, that Bonnie Prince Charlie's quite a decent guy, quite a fair-minded exactly. kind of chap. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't fight for him, but you know, say what you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that's it, and and I think it's, and in fact, it, it's quite interesting because dis, despite the fact that both her father and grandfather fought at Culloden, um, there are stories of which kind of provide the offset. I mean, we all know the stories of Butcher Cumberland and the terrible things that were done to the Highlands after Culloden. But there are small anecdotes in in the Oliphant family story, which which show that it's not the complete story that because apparently the government forces raided Gask when the when the grandfather and father were away up at, uh, retreating with the Highland army up north, and they took money and some clothes from the ladies, 
And uh, a few days later, a letter arrived from the Hanoverian governor of Perth saying this is completely out of order, taking on defenceless women, uh, absolutely ridiculous. If you just let us know how much money they took and uh, and what, what they took and we'll make sure it was returned to you, and it was. And subsequently, um, there were 40,000 marks awarded to uh, Amelie Oliphant, which is her grandmother, as because she was thought to be... Uh, um, on, on you know hard up basically in, in dire straits so as the clemency of the government even though they'd taken away her estate effectively they gave her all this money yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's it's quite and in fact the story of of her family's jacobitism is story of staunch jacobitism and to an extent the government kind of understanding yeah C- certainly i suppose you know after the the immediate aftermath you know when there was a sort of quiet relaxation. I yeah. mean, because her 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 parents were in exile in France for for yeah. Well, they a they f- met they met they were both after. they were both living near Versailles when they when her right, parents met, right. and uh, and they ended up uh, getting married in the town of Versailles. Uh-huh. Um, and because she both their families born, were in exile. But she was born herself in Scotland. Yeah, she was born in Cask. All the all the the elephant children of her generation were born in, in Britain because her father wanted them to be British, so he sent his wife home. And actually, because after Culloden, he met his own father, so the two of them escaped. They hung around in, in hiding in Scotland for a while and then escaped from Arbroath to Sweden in October. So they were in hiding for six months. But they were away for you know, 15, 20 years. And mm. eventually, her father came back because when her, big si- when her eldest sister was being born in 1762, um, her mother was very ill. And they were all very worried about her. Um, so the father actually basically sneaked back into the country incognito uh, to be with his wife because they thought that, that, you know, this was her, this could have been her last days. And then realized clearly that actually, as long as he kept himself to himself, no one was actually too bothered that he was there. So after a little, another couple of years, they managed to, to get her, her grandfather back as well. Um, and they kind of lived quietly by all accounts. She, they, her friends and relatives had actually bought back the estate from the government who had confiscated it after the uprising. Right. Uh, so they paid to buy it back. Um, so they go back to the kind of family seat, as it were. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In Gask. But the interesting thing is, I, I think, about the Jacobitism did not sort of fade away in the sense that her father, even after Bonnie Prince Charlie was, was dead, her father um, basically sent away a priest who was a minister who was well a clergyman it says who was uh who was conducting business at gask and he was sacked because he had had taken uh, the an oath of allegiance to george iii after the death of prince charles and the apparently the king heard about this um and sent him a note saying the elector of hanover's compliments to the laird of gask and wishes to tell him how much the elector respects the laird for the steadiness of his principles and 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 even despite that her brother in 1797 her wee brother still refuses to take the abjuration oath which is basically saying okay fine we we got it wrong hanover's the true house blah 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 so so he that meant that he couldn't even though he was a younger son so he didn't really inherit anything he couldn't actually get a cushy government job because he wouldn't take the abjuration oath even in 1797 Right, so, so, so that 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 Jacobitism, that that strain, <laughs> was was deep. 
Well, that's right. It's not it's not sentimentalized Jacobitism, which is a lot of a lot of the, if you if you read sort of critiques of her work now, a lot of it's you know like the Wikipedia entry kind of says things like oh, it's famous for sentimentalized Jacobite lyrics, and you, and actually the argument is that 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 not really actually that this was it was deeply held principles by the family, even if it kind of was in in kind of. If, in conflict with other elements of of their their lives, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, she she um she became quite quite religious, didn't she? Did she not develop quite a strong kind of yeah? Calvinist well, that was that was when she was she she heard apparently around about the time that she actually wrote Land of the Leal. Interestingly, she uh, she was in seventeen ninety seven. She was living in Durham with her brother, who by the way had joined a, a the kind of military organization to put down the Jacobin should there be a kind of a, a, a French Revolution style uprising. Oh, right, right. So so clearly, you know, he was going to be a Jacobite until it became class war, in which case he knew which side he was on. Uh, but anyway, they, uh, so she was down in, in Durham that period and she went to a visit to a country house and heard a clergyman preach there and was really affected by his words and kind of had a kind of Christian reawakening, if you like, at that point, mm. uh, which which affected the later, her later in life. And, and she became increasingly religious the older she got. Um, but I think it's worth thinking about that. the, And in fact, people have said, writers have said in the 19th century, people said that her Jacobitism actually for people in this period was actually more of a religion than it was a kind of logical process of thought. It was just a testament of faith. It was like a faith, basically. Yeah. And, uh, and I think in the, even in, throughout the 19th century, um, her verses were described as among the last of the earnest Jacobite songs. This is an affectation as far as the kind of, even in the 1870s, people were, uh, Titler and Watson write that, that it's, this is not affectation, this is earnest Jacobitism. Yeah, but then you can understand that because she's, you know, she's grown up... Her, her parents have returned to Scotland not long before she's born. You know, she must be brought up with that whole thing of, you know, we lost everything. We had to yeah. go into exile. You know, I mean, that'll be a really, a really strong sort of thing that's been, I'm sure, ingrained in her. Yeah. And, and you know, Carolina, she's named after Bonnie Prince Charlie. So Yeah. Yeah. Aye, yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of her, her, um, her songwriting sort of span, most of her songs were written actually sort of before she was or up to the point that she was married. I think she had quite a long engagement, but yeah, you know, she wrote most a, of her songs when she was young. Although apparently, I think her her last song was written when she was seventy five. Yeah, well, she's she's still working in the in the eighteen in the eighteen sort of teens and eighteen twenties. She's she's working uh, with a committee of ladies that are that are coming up with. Are writing and collecting and editing songs for Purdy for the Scottish Minstrel, right? And Caroline Oliphant is one of the key kind of players in that. She she mm. with the Mrs. Hume, she sets sort of sets up. She's part of this part of this committee, um, and this is despite the fact so she's going on with this, but at the same time she's becoming increasingly religious, so that she doesn't let her son learn dancing, for instance, even though when in her youth. She'd been taught by an Italian music teacher, apparently. She'd been taught dancing and harpsichord and guitar by a guy who used to come out from Perth to Gask. Um, and, and so she could be the kind of the flower of Strathern, as she was known. 
and Neil Gow noticed her and, and admired her dancing, actually. So at the same time as she's conducting this sort of committee, she's also becoming more sternly religious and kind of disapproving of of the kind of things that some of the songs talk about. Is there Jean? She was both good and fair Jean. I know we grudged her sair to the land of the Caroline Oliphant uh, was a reasonable musician, it seems, and had done some uh, composing herself. But the tune that she used for Land of the Leal is a much, much older tune. It was very much pre-existing. Yeah, um, it, it first appears in print. Um, the tune is Hey Tutti Tete. It first appears in print in the middle of the 18th century in James Oswald's Caledonian Pocket Companion, um, the third volume uh, of that uh, the Caledonian Pocket Companion was the collection across its volumes which had, you know, countless um, really well-known Scottish tunes or tunes that have become well-known. But the interesting thing with the tune for Land which is Hey Tutti Tete, the interesting thing is that in the Pocket Companion, it's really close to the version that we, we know now. And there's very little kind of change in it over the years. Um, with some of the songs in the Pocket Companion, things like Bonnie Dundee, um, there's been a lot of variation happened over the years, and in some cases, the tune has really evolved, but not the case with um, this this tune, Hey Tutti Tete. As as Marty said, it, it's thought to be a really ancient tune. Tradition has it that it was actually played at Bannockburn by uh, the troops as as Bruce was leading the troops into battle there. Um, of course, there's very little, <laughs> very little way of knowing that. As most of it's the always very mo- difficult to know whether that's a- true or whether it was just reconstructed because of what Burns did with it later. Yeah, well, people people build back. Um, you know, they kind of work back as is the only way to do it. And as we find yeah. with, with some of these songs, you know, you have a definite date that you know they they first appeared in print, for example, but obviously they existed orally, a lot of them beforehand, not all of them, but some of them did. Uh, And then you kind of are piecing together little bits of the jigsaw to find out where they came from. It's quite Uh, like trying to work out where you left your jacket after a night out. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there are various various things that point to the the tune uh, predating even the 18th century. But... Um, as you'll have heard from the little snippets that of our version which we've played, um, the song is probably or the tune is probably more famous as the tune uh, to Scots Wahey. Now, before it appeared alongside Scots Wahey, it was in Johnson's Scots Musical Museum, another uh, volume which published a lot of Burns stuff. Um, it appeared there in 1788 with two tunes, uh, two songs. Uh, neither of which were Land of the Leal, or indeed Scots Way. It was Landlady Count the Lawn, and there was another one, Here's to the King, which is uh, mentioned as a Jacobite uh, song. Uh, I was about to ask which king. Yeah, but it's um, Here's to the King. It's Charles the Twelfth of Sweden is mentioned <laughs> in it. So it's it's kind of a a Jacobite Swedish song. Uh, at that point, Charles the Twelfth. 
this was sort of he was on campaign at the same time as um, the sort of first well the 1715 uprising in Scotland right. uh, he was killed in 1718 so um, you know there's that tie in between the Jacobites and the Swedes who were at that point fighting against the Russians the Danes and it seems virtually every of everyone neighbouring them um they were wearing the same tour T-shirts, is what you're saying, yeah, yeah. basically. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. The support act. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then the tune next appears in 1801, and that's where it comes with Burns' Scots Wahey and with Land of the Leal, and it's in George Thompson's Select Scottish Airs in the third volume. Now, George Thompson published uh, a, a whole host of Burns' songs, and in fact... Burns wrote Scots Wahey in 1793 and sent it to Thompson suggesting that it go along with the tune Hey Tutti Tete, but Thompson thought he knew better and put it to another tune called Louis Gordy. And he said uh, in his a letter at the time to friends, Thompson was saying that Burns had sent him this new song. Uh, and wanted it to go with Hey Tutti Tete, but Thompson told his friends that the tune was totally devoid of interest or grandeur, <laughs> so he put it with another one and changed the words about. Uh, so at that point, it seemed that uh, Hey Tutti Tete wasn't going to be revived. But two years later, for the third volume, Thompson decided that he he had made a mistake and he would reunite Burns' words to Scots with Hey with the tune Hey Tutti Tete, and it's there that Land of the Leal appears on the same page, along with the To tune. be fair, he says he says at the time, even when he's printing it, he actually does fess up to the fact that he changed the tune it should be set to, and then listen to the tune again a year or two later, and admits that he got it wrong. Yeah, yeah. And and also, the Land of the Leal is, is listed as by unknown, even though Scots Wahey is attributed to Burns on that page, but Land of the Leal is by unknown, despite the fact that George Thompson, in another letter, wrote to a friend that he considered himself a songbroker for the ladies. Ah, but did, was there not a story about um, Caroline Oliphant going... I can't remember if it was Thompson but that had insisted on meeting this uh, wonderful... It was uh, Purdy. It was, it was the guy ah, that published the Scottish Minstrel in 1820, in ah, 1821. insisted on meeting her she and disguised she went in herself. disguise. <laughs> yeah, she just because she was Mrs Bogan of Bogan. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that was our pen Mrs. name. Mrs. Boggan wasn't of Boggan, as we might say now. But um but she yeah, she disguised herself as this kind of bumpkin out of towner, out of touch, out of towner. Uh, and and con, con, conducted this absurd charade. Yeah, what's interesting though actually, Marty, as well, about Landaleel appearing. Obviously Burns had thought that Hey Tutti Tete would go with Scots with Hey because it was a fine martial tune. But quite a lot of people around the time that Burns was in contact with also thought that it was it was a really beautiful melody. And in fact, yeah. uh, there's a, a, an Italian musician, Pietro Urbani, who uh, came over and uh, taught and composed in Scotland and then became a publisher, actually a rival publisher to George Thompson. Um, and he actually said to Burns, uh, he kind of urged him to write soft verses, as he put it, to Hey Tutti Tete. So it's interesting that um, as, while Burns did write the sort of martial Scots with Hey to bring out that side of the tune, Lady Nairn was able to write 
landolil yeah. and bring out the the softer but um, I do wonder scene. if the beauty of the tune and George Thompson's rediscovery of the beauty of the tune might have had something to do with the fact that he got Haydn to reset it. Uh, well, this is the other thing because Franz Joseph Haydn, famous Austrian composer, you know, massive influence on Mozart and teacher of Beethoven. Uh, he's the one that set the arrangements to these select Scottish airs um, published by George Thompson. So it's trying to bring sort of folk melodies and marry them to sort of Viennese harmony. Um, so Haydn was doing that. But again, uh, Thompson it was that had quite a bit of correspondence with Beethoven and Beethoven uh, wrote his 25 Scottish melodies. So um, Heel and Laddie, uh, a song that we've done, was one which Beethoven ended up doing settings to. There, there were a set of 25. And actually George Thompson contacted Beethoven in the early 1800s um, about a project that they were going to do where Beethoven was actually going to write um, concertos based on Scottish melodies, um, on some <laughs> of these old folk melodies, which would have been, um, I think, amazing. But it, just interesting, that, that sort of transition from the classical period into the romantic period as well, that sort of use of folk song, you know, which obviously yeah. Grieg used a lot of Norwegian folk tunes and later Vorjak used folk tunes in his work. So it was interesting to see that really kind of... Uh, Right at the centre of Scottish say, music it's part as well. Of the romantic, it's part of the Romantic movement, the idea. It's what Wordsworth described as the language really used by men. Yeah. He was going to make his lyrical ballads all this poetry that was that was part of this, the way people actually speak instead of very kind of highly formalised Augustan verse. Yeah. And I guess Burns is leading the charge there and Lady Nairn is kind of close on his heels, really. Version is is based pretty closely on the that original uh, published version from 1801, um, which is in George Thompson's Select Scottish Airs. It had been written a couple of years before, uh, and Lady Nairn had apparently written the song after the the death of a friend's child, a friend's baby, actually, um, and it starts off in the original version I'm wearing a wall John like snow wreaths and thaw John I'm wearing a wall to the land of the leal now we sing basically the, the first two verses and then we, we kind of bastardised the, the last two verses and took half of one and half of the other partly so we could fit in Marty's guitar solo um, <laughs> which was about my only contribution to the song as I recall <laughs> Oh, but what a contribution. <laughs> Did you ever get out of the Grand Canyon, by the way? <laughs> um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with a bit of reverb. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually, it, it works, I think. Um, yeah, so we. <laughs> Thanks for damning the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a while since we've had a chance to do it on stage. So, um, yeah, so, so we have sort of three stanzas there. And I. I, I when when I first heard it, 
It was actually being played by... It was on a programme about Scottish music uh, by Phil Cunningham, and he was performing it uh, with a, a Scottish singer called James Grant, who some of you will will be aware of from Love and Money. So I heard that version, and then I went back to the the original version, and as I say, kind of took, took a, a, an amalgam of the two. I suppose the biggest change that we have is the fact that from the original is the fact that uh, in in Lady Nairn's version it's I'm wearing a war John and that became Jean in 1837 it was published in Vocal Melodies of Scotland and with John becoming Jean and the author being anonymous at that point there was a big sort of um, a, a big idea that this was actually written by Burns and was a sort of his, his last song written on his deathbed kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's, but it's also, I mean, there are broadsheets as well that are undated that are from presumably around about the mid 19th century, which cite it as by Burns and they usually cite shorter versions of it as well. Mm. But then it's partly because we were saying that she adopted disguises to, to get out of admitting, well, to deliberately avoid it and to disguise her authorship. Of course, Walter Scott did that too. Um, yeah, and there yeah. are reasons, as we were mentioning, about that. But even when she sent it to her friend, um, the friend who'd lost the child, who was Mrs. Campbell Cahoon, um, who actually was Mary Ann Erskine before she got married, who was Will Erskine, Walter Scott's best friend's sister. But anyway. Um, oh, there you go, fact fans. <laughs> But she, uh, so she sent this to her. But even then, she wrote in the, she wrote to her that you know, please don't reveal th- that you know who the author was of this. You have to keep this a secret. So she was, she was quite keen on, um, on, on uh, even at that stage, even even in a sort of private correspondence, making sure that people didn't let the secret out, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and and she, we- she had to, well, she had to live with that because because although it was attributed to Burns, she actually um, around about the time her husband was was very sick. Well, she, she, she wrote an, un, it's an undated letter, but it says, Lord Nairn is very poorly. That and my accounts from the South are not cheering. The land of the Leal is a happy rest for the sinner in this dark pilgrimage. Oh yes, I was young then. I wrote it merely because I liked the air so much. Put these words to it, never fearing questions as to authorship. However, a lady would know and took it down, and I had not Sir Walter's art of denying. I was present when asserted that Burns composed it on his deathbed and that he had it Jean instead of John. But the parties could not decide why it never appeared in his work, as his last lay should have done. So she she basically should have was sitting there going, "I know why it didn't appear in his works. <laughs> it's because exactly. I wrote it." But she didn't actually. <laughs> exactly. She didn't own up to that. Even she then, even say, then, yeah, even then, she didn't say, "No, no, no, it was me." So she, you know, it was just, and it was an assertion because it wasn't appropriate, as we were saying earlier. It wasn't. She thought anyway. It wasn't appropriate yeah. for a lady to be writing these sort of things, and maybe it was to do with her husband. You just don't know. Yeah. Um, but you know, clearly for her own reasons, it was a very heartfelt thing. It wasn't just for show, because she and and it wasn't until after she died that actually all these so- great songs were attributed to her as a kind of collection yeah. by her, if you like. And it's interesting to just kind of muse on on, you know, to what extent that has played a part in her her being maybe a little undervalued in terms of, you know, her songwriting contribution, um, or whether that's just a gender thing and you know. No, well, the... I mean it may be, but I th- I think it's it certainly might have contributed to it. Hmm. Um 
Scott kept it secret up to a point, but it was a fairly open secret, and then laterally, of course, it wasn't a secret at all. Yeah, yeah. But Caroline Oliphant very definitely held to it. But then it was such a, it, it became a very famous piece, and you know, there are not not only people talking about the Land of the Leal as a song, but even into the eighteen nineties, there's two novels published called Land of the Leal. One of them by a woman called Annie S. Swan, who's about one of the, the biggest selling Scottish novelists that no one's ever heard of. She was selling copies by the hundred thousand when she was uh, when she was writing. She wrote hundred and fifty novels in her lifetime. Gee, right. Um but that's that's another podcast. But uh, and you know, James Bark wrote another novel called Land of the Leal about uh, about agricultural workers in uh, Galloway as well in the in the twentieth century. So it still had currency yeah, yeah. culturally. And and clearly, as we were saying right at the outset, you know, Outlaw King and Little Women suggest that it still has currency now. We've long been left alone, we'll all meet again in the land of So dry your tearful EG. My soul longs to be free, and angels beckon me to the land of the leal. Well, hope you've enjoyed the uh, podcast and our, our little delve into Land of the Leal. Or rambling, depending uh, on how you look at it. Well, there we go. <laughs> as if to prove the point. Anyway, uh, yeah, as I say, we've got a few others um, up there. Um, Old Lang Syne, we have one about, which you might want to have a listen to in the lead up to New Year, so you can bore all your friends at your New Year Zoom party um, <laughs> with the background to Old Lang Syne. We've got that, the Four Marys, uh, Bonnie Dundee, Johnny Cope. Um, and now Land of the Leal. So if if you want to get them, you can get them Apple Music, Podbean, all sorts of uh, podcast places. And if all else fails, you can go to SoundCloud and get it soundcloud.com and just search for the sorries. Um, or on our website, which is scottishsongguide.com. And there you'll find uh, not only the episodes, but also links to the source material and so on. So that's it. We really hope to see you live soon. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Yeah, we'll, we'll speak to you again soon. Okay, bye for now. Bye-bye.